0: Welcome to Glendale Bible Study. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Today we will pick up in chapter 9, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, which um, concerns the sixth trumpet and the second of the three wolves. So I will begin reading in verse 13, uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, and we'll read uh, through the end of the, the chapter. Their number uh, uh, to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horse. So, so, this is how I saw the horse, horses in my vision, and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire, and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality. Or their thefts. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Now, in verse 13, after the sixth angel blows his trumpet, uh, John hears a voice that triggers the second woe and that unfolds the events connected with the sixth trumpet. Uh, As we did last week, we'll look at five things in relation to this particular vision. The first thing to note is the location from which the voice came. In verse 13, we are told that the voice comes from the golden altar before the throne of God. Now, I think this imagery is important because it it corresponds to um, something else that we've seen elsewhere in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and then also reference uh, to that altar before the throne of God is seen in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. Uh, I say imagery because if heaven or if God is a spirit being, then there is probably not a physical altar in the presence of God. But the idea of the altar being before the presence of God is used significantly in at least the two places that we mentioned. For instance, in chapter 6, the altar of God is the place, underneath the altar of God, is the place where the, the, the souls of martyred saints are said to be that they are. They cry out from underneath the altar before God. They cry out for uh, vengeance for those who have shed their blood. So the the altar before God symbolizes, in essence, the place where the souls of martyred saints cry out to God. In chapter eight, verses three and four. In fact, we can look there just for a moment. But we see another reference to the, uh, the altar uh, that's before the throne of God. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, it says, um, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. So the altar in chapter 6 before uh, the throne of God is depicted as the place where the souls of the martyred saints are, but here in chapter 8 we see the emphasis is on the prayers of the saints that are mixed with the incense uh, that's, that, that goes up before the, the presence of God. But in both cases, and, and we'll see the significance there, in both cases, the altar before the Lord is connected to the people of God. So the souls of the martyred saints crying out and the prayers of all of the saints being offered through the altar that is before the throne of God. A second thing to note here is the reference to the four horns. Now, four would be the number of completion, but the the horns themselves are symbolic. They are used in other places to symbolize authority or safety, Uh, actually authority and power that provides safety. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, and we can look at a couple of places where that is the instance, or that is uh, how the the, the the horns of the altar are depicted as a place of refuge. In uh, First Kings, we'll look at two places in First Kings chapter fifty, uh, chapter one, verses fifty and fifty-one, and chapter two, verse twenty-eight. But then, also, and I, I want to skip before we get to the, revel, uh, the the First King passages. I want to look at. In, in uh, Revelation chapter fourteen, verse eighteen, where the the horns of the altar are associated with authority. Uh, so in First Corinth, excuse me, in, in uh, Revelation chapter fourteen, in verse eighteen, it says, "Then uh, and another angel came out from the altar." the angel who has authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle so again the altar and the horns of the altar are associated with authority kingly authority so he's he's acting with the authority of the king but in 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 historical portions of the old testament uh, first kings in particular we see Again, the presence of the king, who is the representative of God, offering safety, or the assumption that there is safety by holding on to the the horns of the altar. So let's look at First Kings, uh, chapter one, and chapters uh, chapters one and two. But in First Kings chapter one, look at verses fifty and fifty one, and here it speaks. Um, Well, I'll I'll back up to verse 49, beginning in verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, who was the king. Uh, So he arose and went, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, "Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon." For he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, "Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword." So here's an enemy of the king, and this was part of a plot to try to keep Solomon from ascending to the throne. And once that that plot failed, uh, one of the key conspirators sought refuge. And so he went to the place, he went to the altar, and put his, his hands on the, he grabbed a hold of the horns on the altar, representing the authority and the power of the king, but he also pleaded for mercy. So he found security in, uh, in, that, uh, in that symbol. Also in chapter 2, in chapter 2 of 1 Kings, uh, we'll look at verse 28, and we'll see it used in a similar way. When the news came to Joab, for Joab Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom. Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Same thing. uh, Seeking mercy from the presence of the, the authority, knowing that the king has the authority of God and the power. And so, therefore, seeking refuge from the power of the king. So, when we talk about the altar itself, the altar represents, the altar before the throne of God represents the people of God, the souls of those who have been martyred, as well as uh, the prayers of all of the saints. So that being the case, the command given to the angel can be understood as the authority and the power of God that will be exerted on behalf of the people of God. Because he is rising up from um, the, the, the horns of the altar where the the spirits of, of those who have been martyred and the prayers of all of the saints, and he is using divine authority. So everything that will emanate from this particular woe emanates from the power and authority of God on behalf of the people of God because it's in conjunction with the altar. Here's the third thing. In verse 14, The angel with the sixth trumpet is commanded to release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River who had been prepared for this moment, this time. And so we we, we see a couple of things here that it's certainly they have been bound for a particular time. And the one who is the Lord of time Is God Himself. But now here's the key because what we've seen is angelic presence. There's no reason to assume other than the fact that the angel who blows the trumpet and the angel who pronounces the woe are angels who are being used as ministers or servants of God, unfallen angels representing the authority of God. But now here's where it gets a little difficult if we're not clear and careful in our interpretations. The four angels who are associated with the Euphrates are described as being bound, which means they are not of the same ilk as the angels who are doing the will of God who are unfallen. In other words, this is a continuation of what we saw from the fifth trumpet. These angels who are bound are angels who are cursed. Uh, Greg Beale makes the point that the reference here, and when I mention Greg Beale, he's one of the resources that we've recommended for a healthy study of the book of Revelation. Greg or G.K. Beale, his um, commentary on the book of Revelation. But he points out the fact that these angels have been bound and they have been restrained. And that indicates that they are wicked and fallen angels, and they are like the demonic spirits who have also been bound in the bottomless pit, who have been released. So this is there's no reason to not assume that what is being described here is a continuation of demonic experience or demonic uh, influence under the the. The leadership, or under the uh, the command of God, for His own particular purpose. Uh, so, in a very similar way, this is uh, a continuation, or very similar, I should say, to the fifth trumpet and the first, um, the first of the wolves. And in both cases, those who were bound, those demonic spirits that were bound, are being used by God as instruments of judgment. And it's very precise to go back to verse four, um, or verse 14, yeah, um, yeah. well, we'll pick up in verse 13, that the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from uh, the four horns of the altar before God, emanating from the place of divine authority, where he and and also where the saints of God are represented, saying to the sixth angel who held the, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound, uh, and those angels would be demonic spirits. And the reference to uh, the Euphrates. That, I'm, let me just go ahead and shift to the fourth thing, the reference to the Euphrates. Why the Euphrates? I want to read. From another resource that we've recommended, and that's Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb, because there's historical significance both immediately for Rome as well as for ancient Israel. So let me just read what uh, Dennis Johnson says about that. He says the Euphrates River had biblical and contemporary significance uh, and significance. In biblical history, the Euphrates connoted a source of oppression and a place of exile. Beyond the Euphrates River had stood ancient Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire that conquered the northern kingdom and Babylon, which had carried Judah into captivity. The Lord had humbled and dismantled Babylon through the rising power of the Medo-Persian Empire and resettled the people in the land of promise. But prophets in the exile still spoke of foreign powers such as Gog, who would sweep down from the northeast uh, and from the Euphrates to afflict God's people. This is referenced in Ezekiel chapter 38. For the residents of the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, which would be contemporary with John's writings, the Euphrates was the eastern edge of Rome's domain, beyond which were the threatening powers of the East, especially Parthia, with its cavalry, with its cavalry of mounted archers, always harassing the the Roman Empire's eastern outposts. During the sixties, the, confla- uh, the conflagration that destroyed large portions of Rome and Nero's disappearance. Rumors flew in the capital and the the provinces that the megalomaniacal emperor had escaped to the east and was making preparations to reconquer the world at the head of the Parthian cavalry. Now here's what what both of those references have in common. Military or national conquests so there is a an actual national enemy that represented a military threat to the people of god so the euphrates is used here as a symbolic point of reference for an impending force that represents a threat that is similar to the military threat play, uh, that was experienced in the old testament as well as the Roman Empire near the Euphrates. So the Euphrates is not the point. So once again, we have to be clear. We don't want to try to look at the newspapers and find out what's going on near the Euphrates and think that's, that's the point, that's Scripture being fulfilled. The greater point is what the real threat is. It's not the invading of nations. But it's a spiritual invasion. Remember, it's the angels who were bound at that particular place that will now be uh, that will now be released. They are released through uh, the blowing of the sixth trumpet, and they will wreak havoc in the same way that Parthian, uh, Parthia represented a military threat to Rome, and the same way that. Those that were beyond the Euphrates represented a military threat to national Israel. The difference is, we're not talking about physical human armies. The threat that's being described with this particular um, this particular woe and this particular trumpet is demonic. So let's go back to Revelation nine, and we'll get a description of the 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 havoc that is wreaked and then we'll move into the fifth and final point so in revelation 9 and i'll pick up um in verse i want to focus on verses 17 uh through 17 through 19 and this is how i saw the horses in my vision and by the way more than the riders of the horses in this vision it's the horses themselves it's the horses that become the source. And it's still a description of de- demonic activity rather than physical horses. So we don't have to look for horses that look this crazy and that are that threatening. Um, but in uh, beginning of verse 17, he says, And then, uh, then as I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And on the heads of the horses were like lions heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents with heads and by By means of them, they wound. So you notice what keeps getting repeated? Their mouths, which brings us to the fifth and final point. The end result of this demonic activity is connected to the mouths, is connected actually to the three plagues that will be the result of these demons. And these three plagues... Are associated with the mouth. There will come forth from their mouth fire, smoke, and sulfur. These three things that we know of in the physical material world are symbolic in the same way that the horses are symbolic. So there's not going to be a horse that will come forth that will have that will breathe out fire, and then will have smoke, and then sulfur, which will kill and wound the people. No, what's being described is the activity of demons. Now, remember, last week, we emphasized that it doesn't, it doesn't specify the way in which the demons will torture other than allowing them, allowing fallen humanity to remain fallen. I think this is a further explanation of the, of the similar event and as it is with the, uh, the other visions. The, it's not a matter of this happening and then this will happen, but these things overlap and they are connected. So if we connect them, then basically what we're seeing is another description of demonic influence that coincides with the fifth, uh, the fifth trumpet. But this one is specified because it, it becomes more specific. Whatever else uh, that is the result of demonic influence among fallen humans as it relates to their passions and their thinking, being hardened in the, in the way they are. Here's one thing that is specific. These demons will also specifically bring harm on those who don't belong to God by way of false prophecy. The conjunction with their mouth, the emphasis on their mouth simply means that the source, because these are demons and it's not their intent to physically harm or to bring physical fire on the earth, but God will use these false prophets to continue to delude those who refuse to repent. Now, by the way, you'll notice that. That emphasis is laid at the end of the, um, uh, in verses 20 through 21. It says, uh, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. So this is an opportunity during this period, this is an opportunity for men to repent. Those who are not sealed, they uh, who those who are not uh, indwelt by the Spirit, those who do not belong to the Lord, it's an opportunity to repent, but remember the co- connection we made last week to Romans 1, 28 and 29. God gave them over to a a darkened or to a hardened heart. He let them, he hardened their heart to let them continue to be what they were. He gave them over um, to their own devices. He hardens their heart so that they continue to be what they are, and this is the, the influence of the demons. But now, on top of that, there is a particular demonic, um, a demonic activity that will continue in the earth until the return of the Lord. And that's false teaching. And this false teaching will not always be bad doctrine. It could be other forms of religion. It could be seeking... That uh, seeking from secondary sources what can only come from from God through Christ. It could be um, a friend, David Zaw, uh, the founder of Mockingbird Ministries, and I've recommended this book over and over again, his book, Seculosity. In the book, he plays on um, a recent finding that in a number of of surveys over the last 10, 15 years— there is an increasing number of people whose religious affiliation is categorized as none. And the point that uh, David makes is that the people, there's an increasing number of people who are not claiming any religious or church affiliation, but they are seeking from other things that which they, you would ordinarily ascribe to religion so they are seeking purpose they are seeking identity they are seeking they're seeking fulfillment from things that are that used to be sought in religion now they're seeking it in exercise and <coughs> excuse me in their dieting plan in their uh their <coughs> excuse me in any number of things that are not necessarily religious in nature and so when you read what what, uh, what John says here that uh, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons of, and, and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stood, in wool, and, and stood in stone and wood. Now that could refer to physical idols, but we will also see later in the book of Revelation That when the whore of Babylon is destroyed, it mentions the merchants and everything else that was associated with the whore. Um, And it's, it's this worldly system. And so really what's being described here is demonic activity that will masquerade itself as truth and as a source of being and as a source of fulfillment. So whether it's actually worshiping at a physical altar or seeking fulfillment in self, the deception. And notice again, the emphasis is from the mouth. We see another place in Revelation chapter 12, as a matter of fact, where it speaks of um, the serpent being thrown out of heaven. And I'm going to pick up, or the dragon being thrown out of heaven, and I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of uh, the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood but the earth that the dragon had uh, but uh but the earth or, yeah i'm sorry but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth the dragon then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the side of the sea on the sand of the sea again the imagery here is the dragon seeking to destroy the people of God with water that spews out of his mouth it's not literal water The importance, the emphasis is the the mouth. And so with the mouth, in chapter 9, these demons spew smoke, fire, and sulfur from the mouth, dangerous, and in some cases poisonous things that can bring harm. And the point is the mouth, so therefore the emphasis is things that are spoken. I want to read another portion of scripture in 2 Thessalonians. This is uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Thessalonians uh, concerning the importance of truth. Now, by the way, the Thessalonian church is described in his first letter to them as those from whom the word of God sounds forth. But I want to read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll begin in verse And we'll read down through verse 12 Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ And our being gathered together to him We ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind Or alarmed either by a spirit Or a spoken word Or a letter seeming to be from us To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who oppresses and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do not do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that they may that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, I think what Paul, what, what Paul is describing here is what John sees unfold in a vision in both the fifth and the sixth trumpets and the first and second woes. What John sees is the rising of demonic activity. And it's not going to be with the things that we associate demonic activity. It's not going to be, this one, holy water is not going to help on this one. This is not about people's eyes turning green and it's not about strange voices. No, this is something that is very subtle. That's how Satan works. It's very subtle. That truth and error will always be available to the image bearers of God. And the the influence of the of the evil one and the influence of the demons is that they will hear that which is false about themselves, about God, about others, about the world, and they will believe it, and they will reject what is true and what God says about himself, what God says about the individual human soul, what God says about salvation, and what God says about human history. The demonic influence is not people doing strange things, it's people being deceived by the deceiver. And the question was raised, um, Dennis Johnson brings up the point in his commentary, Triumph of the Lamb, how can spiritual beings bring about death? And all we have to do is look at the cost of false doctrine. There have been various ways in which false doctrine, false prophecy has been the source of death, whether it's Jim Jones having 900 people drink cyanide, whether it's, um, whether it's, it's, it's some other cult, uh, David Koresh and all of the people that were killed be, with him because they believed what he was teaching them, which was contrary to truth. So there are a number of ways. Heaven's Gate. I mean, there are a number of ways death results from false uh, from from false doctrine. The primary point here is twofold: that the ways in which, and at least up to this point in the visions that John sees, the ways in which Satan and his demons are given freedom in this, uh, under these. Uh, woes and plagues is to torture those who are unbelievers, and the means by which they will torture them is man being seared into his fallenness. And secondly that he that they are given an appetite for false prophecy. And will not hear the truth of God's word. We as believers, are re- we will remain in the world as these things go forth. And our challenge is that we would not be deceived even for a moment. And that we would hold to the truth of what God has revealed in his word. And our hope and confidence is always in Christ. So that whether it's in our behavior or our belief, it is shaped by what God himself has revealed. It might seem like circular arguing and reasoning, but those who are in Christ are to be nurtured by him. And those who are outside of Christ can't see him for the Savior that he is. And in order to see him as he is, you must be sealed by him, by his Holy Spirit. You must be awakened by the Spirit to recognize Christ as Savior. We are left in this world as witnesses that Christ and not the self, that Christ and not the world, are our only hope and solution. Until Christ returns... We have every opportunity to go into the uttermost parts of the world and preach the gospel. And as the Holy Spirit gives life, it's going to be through the gospel. But in the interim, what's taking place in the world is not just wars and rumors of wars. All of that is taking place in conjunction. So in conjunction with these physical manifestations of judgment, it's this spiritual war that's taking place. And God has given us the opportunity to reach those who will be tormented to degrees that we cannot even fathom. So here is an opportunity for the saints to minister. Understand what you're up against. Paul says we're, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities. It's not about the ability to levitate things in a room It's about breaking the bondage of sin. And the only thing that can break the bondage of sin, the only thing that can create new life, is the proclamation of the gospel. So doesn't it become clear that doctrine is important? That who we say that God is, and who we say that Jesus is, that it is important. Because in the end, if we are right, and I believe we are, then all of the things that are taking place, the, 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 the disruptions within the created order are only a warm up for a greater judgment that is to come. And if we're right, then we may we, we understand that we may get some Flesh wounds. We may even die as God is bringing judgment on the created order, but we are sealed, we are saved, and we are secure. So while we may experience suffering now, because we are not tied to those who dwell on the earth, but we are attached by faith to he who is at the right hand of the Father. And so all of these things are coming forth from the altar that is before the throne of God so that he will bring vengeance for us. And the way in which he will, one of the ways in which he will bring vengeance is to let the unbeliever continue to believe in himself and to believe in the lie. Two things taking place, the people of God Are being affirmed through the ministry of the word of the gospel and those who don't belong to him are being condemned because of their refusal to receive the word of grace that's how demons work this is a major part of spiritual warfare in this present age well, we will pick up next week as we continue to uh, look at these bowl or these these visions of the trumpets and the wolves that are associated with them. We will look at the the interruption there there's actually sort of a um, there, there's there's a period of reprise before we get to the seventh trumpet in the same way that we saw with the seventh seal. So we'll look at that interval period, uh, the link between the sixth and the seventh. Uh, uh, And we'll pick up on that next week Uh, We hope that this has been clear And we hope uh, it has been a source of encouragement Let's pray Our God and our Father, we again come to you In the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ We thank you for your word You have given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness And we pray that we are nourished and nurtured by the word that you have given us Make us mindful of what we are dealing with, and we thank you for the security that we have in Christ, but we pray that you would give us a heart to know your truth and to communicate that truth to our neighbors. We pray that it will be a source of encouragement to ourselves as well as to our brothers and sisters of like faith, but we pray that you would give us a heart for our neighbors, those who are not able to see your truth. Only you have the power to open our blind eyes and to give life to our dead souls and we pray that through our faithful ministry of your word that those that you have appointed for eternal life even though they are right now in darkness that you would allow the light of your gospel to shine upon them through the knowledge of jesus christ thank you for the comforts that you have given us we pray that we would be confident and even more confident as we see the days unfold Confident that we are yours and you are ours, and therefore there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Strengthen us now for your service, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right.